Well, speaking of the elections, <laughs> let's talk about the government this morning. Uh, I will tell you truthfully, uh, up until just a few minutes ago, I wasn't exactly sure how I was going to start this message. Um, some of you uh, are probably really fired up. All right, let's talk about the government. You like to talk about the government every chance you can. You want to fight about it, argue about it, debate about it. <clears throat> there are probably, probably others of you who are like, oh no, I don't want to talk about it at all, especially not on Sunday morning. So we'll just scrap this and talk about the grace of God in Jesus Christ. No. Um, we're going to talk about uh, government this morning, um, but wh- whichever camp you're in, Uh, The fact of the matter is, uh, very few of us actually trust the government. That's why uh, there's some resistance to even bringing up the subject. There's this uh, study done, it was a longevity study, um, that kind of measured our trust in government. The year before I was born, 1964, uh, almost 80% of Americans said that they trusted government all or most of the time. 80%, 1964. Last year, 2015, that number was below 20%. Uh, we, don't, we don't trust the government. We don't trust the government. What was interesting is that uh, as people aged, they trusted the government less. <laughs> as the longer you watch this process, the less you believe in this process. Government. We're going to talk about the government this morning, but I want to put it in the context of Ecclesiastes. Remember, the big idea of Ecclesiastes is this. There is nothing under the sun... There's nothing on this earth, nothing in this life that can fully satisfy you and fill you up and make you feel a sense of of fulfillment in life that will be enduring. There's nothing on earth, nothing. Not wealth, not wisdom, not your work, not pleasure, nothing. And that includes the government. Government can't solve all of our deepest problems and bring in a, a great life. It can't. And yet, from a biblical perspective... Government is actually a good thing. Government is a a good thing. It's a broken thing. It's an imperfect thing. But it's still a good thing. Now, interestingly, Solomon in Ecclesiastes has a decidedly negative uh, attitude toward government, even though he is the man, right? He is the government. Uh, So we're going to begin outside of Ecclesiastes, and then we're going to work our way back into Ecclesiastes. And what I want to do as we begin is give you four characteristics. This is not an exhaustive list, but four characteristics of good government. The first is this. Good government is established by God. Good government is established by God. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Paul writes, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. God made up the idea of government, uh, even before the fall. Right. So before the fall, there was marriage, there was work, and there was even government, structure and order to society. Government was God's idea. That, and, and here's how it works. There, there is authority in the universe, and ultimately all that authority rests with God. And here's the reason why. Psalm chapter 95. It says, The Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. That he's the, he's the ultimate. In whose hand are the depths of the earth and the peaks of the mountains also are his. The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry lands. Okay, notice in the poetry what he's saying is he's saying, God is in charge of everything from the depths of the earth even to the peaks of the mountain, the sea and the dry land, right? 
high, low, up, down, left, right, east, west, north, south. It's all under God's dominion. He has all of authority. And yet it was God's intention that it would be mankind that would rule with delegated authority from God over all of his creation. And not just the the natural world, but even the structures that bring organization to society, including government. So if you look from Genesis all the way through the book of Psalms into Revelation, you see human government as delegated authority from God. In fact, in the book of Revelation, the great hope when God is restoring his kingdom fully and finally to earth is that we will rule and reign with Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 2, this promise was given to the church in Thyatira, but it applies to the rest of the church as well. Jesus said, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations as I also received authority from my father. That is, the father has all authority. He delegates to the son and the son delegates to men and women ultimately who will rule and reign and we will be the government for eternity. Why is this necessary? Well, because without authority and without organization and structure, Things become chaotic, right? Very well illustrated for me in my fourth grade class, Mrs. Jensen's class, right? <laughs> Mrs. Jensen's class, the objective was to learn. But if Mrs. Jensen left the class, all learning ceased, right? Immediately, all, all learning ceased, and we began to descend into anarchy and chaos. Of course, there was one girl sitting over there who continued to learn all on her own, but really, you know, she didn't want to join us in our rebellion and revolt against authority. I mean, we just went crazy. I don't know, that particular class, we just, we got unhinged. Mrs. Jensen walks out, (laughs) chaos erupts, right? The anarchists begin to rule. Without authority, there is disruption, there's anarchy, there's chaos. It was God's intention that society would be governed. It would be governed ultimately by him, but then through mankind. So that leads to a second point. Good government limits itself because... It recognizes that any authority that it has is delegated authority and limited authority. It's not ultimate. It's not ultimate. Beautiful illustration of this is Nehemiah. Remember, Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king, and it's a little difficult to understand exactly what a cupbearer was. He didn't just walk in with a cup of wine every day and say, here, drink this, right? His job basically was he was an exceptionally close advisor to King Artaxerxes, Right? A Jew serving in a foreign government. Very, very highly trusted. And because of that trust, when Nehemiah heard that the city of Jerusalem had, been, had, had broken down, the walls were destroyed, he requested that he could go and help his own people and rebuild. And so Artaxerxes said, sure, go. Take resources. I'm, I'm going to appoint you as a governing official. You will be the governor of Jerusalem. And as such, he had the right to, in a sense, exact a tax from the people. Every day they were to bring him food for his home and for all of his officials. So every day they had to bring sheep and oxen and goats and and wine and grapes and figs. But Nehemiah looked out at the people and he realized that they were poor and they were struggling. And so he said, I chose not to take all that was mine rightfully. I limited myself. Why? Because governing authorities are ultimately to serve the people that they govern. They're in authority, but they exercise that authority ultimately or should in servanthood to the people. So good government limits itself. Third, good government promotes righteousness. Solomon would write in the book of Proverbs, a wise king winnows the wicked and drives the threshing wheel over them. (laughs) 
He crushes unrighteousness in his kingdom. He, he, he pushes it far from him. He would say later, the eyes of the king disperse evil. There's no room for them in his government or in his kingdom. Chapter 20, verse 28. Loyalty and truth preserve the king and he upholds his throne in righteousness. That is, he punishes wickedness, but he promotes righteousness. Same theme in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter writes, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. So what does a government do? Good government punishes evildoers, praises those who do right, right? Promotes righteousness in the society. Part of that is punishing those who do evil in the society. And one of the ways that that is done is there is no preference given to any person. It doesn't matter if you're old or young or rich or poor. All are treated equally under the law. Proverbs 29. The king gives stability to the land by justice, but a man who takes bribes overthrows it. No unjust scales, no unjust judges. There must be equal application of the law to all people. That promotes stability, justice, righteousness in the land. Witnessed by how we treat those who are, in fact, vulnerable. Proverbs 31 is a king writing to his son who's eventually going to take his place, and he says this, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. One of the greatest marks of a a strong and healthy and a good society is, what does it do for those who cannot speak for themselves, for those who cannot defend themselves or provide for themselves? How does it care for those people? That's the government's, in a sense, the king's responsibility to set a culture in which we care for those who are hurting. And fourth, good government protects order. I want you to turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 2 and verse 1. 1 Timothy, chapter 2 and verse 1. Paul writes to Timothy, First of all then, Timothy, this is a priority. You need to really pay attention to this. First of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Good government creates a stable society in which people can work and provide for themselves. Good government provides a stable society in which people are free to follow their conscience. They're free to worship. In particular, as Paul says, the gospel can continue to go out. Because there's order, there's stability, there's structure. That is good government. So four qualities of good government. It's established by God. It limits itself. Understanding its authority is always delegated by another. It promotes righteousness and it protects order. It doesn't always work that way though, does it? (laughs) Sometimes we, we, we would say in certain seasons or in certain places, rarely. Why? Well, because as with all things, as we've discussed in the book of Ecclesiastes, under the sun, we live under the fall, right? And even government is fallen. So some qualities of fallen government, which actually applies to all governments, right? All, every human government that has ever existed on the face of the earth will display these characteristics to one level or another, right? Every human government, even the best of them. First is this, fallen government is sinful. 
How do we know that? Well, I want you to turn back to the book of Ecclesiastes with me. Chapter 7 and verse 20. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. Solomon writes, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, there is not even one. In other words, government, fallen government, all governments are comprised of fallen people, sinful people. And so government will display the characteristics of its people. You ever heard people talking? They go, man, government, that's the problem. Government's the problem. Government. Got a problem. It's government, right? It's government. Well, our Constitution got it right. It says, we the people. That's how it starts, right? We the people, which means we the problem, right? (laughs) We the people, we the problem, people, right? Because we're the ones who are governing. And we're broken. We're sinful. Sin infiltrates every governing authority. Fallen government's satanic. Some of you are saying, hold on a second, I work for the government. (laughs) It's a little harsh, isn't it? Uh, Let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in the wilderness and he is being tempted. And one of the temptations, Satan says, all you got to do is bow down to me. Bow down. And if you bow down and you worship me, I will give you all of the kingdoms of the earth because they have been delegated to me and I have the right to hand them to anyone that I want to hand them to. Now, was that just wishful thinking on Satan's part? Did he actually have authority over human governments? Apparently so. Later, John would write this. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, that does not mean that every human government is as bad as it possibly could be. There are good people in government. There are godly people in government. What it means is that government is affected and influenced by satanic forces. In fact, one of the primary ways that Satan wants to accomplish his will on earth is by influencing governing authorities. Remember when Daniel was praying and he's praying and he's praying, he's not getting an answer. And finally an angel comes to him and the angel says, hey, sorry, I'm late, but I was doing battle. I was doing battle with fallen angelic forces, with demons. And what we were battling over was what? Human government. We were battling over influence on human government to stop the advancement of the kingdom of God on earth. Human government is sinful. Human government is satanic. doesn't mean that Satan has all control or all authority. In fact, we learn throughout the Bible, uh, Psalm 2 is a great illustration that at times God steps in directly and says, no, an evil ruler has transgressed the boundaries of his authority or her authority, and they're gone. But government is influenced by Satan. Third, fallen government is unjust. Read with me Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 16. Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. And what was the king's responsibility? To promote righteousness and to punish wickedness. But Solomon says, this is what I see. It just doesn't happen. Even though Solomon was a part of government, he was the head of his government, he still saw that government didn't do what government was supposed to do. Chapter 4, verse 1. 
Then I looked at all the acts of oppression which are being done under the sun, and behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but the oppressed had no one to comfort them. You remember our good friend, King Ahab? <laughs> king Ahab, king of the northern tribes in Israel, the northern part of uh, the Jewish population. And there was a vineyard that he really, really wanted. It's owned by another man, Naboth. So he went to Naboth and said, I want your vineyard. I'll buy your vineyard. Naboth said, no, no, said, no, this is my family inheritance. I don't want to sell it. And Ahab kept asking him. And Naboth said, no, I'm not, I'm not going to sell it. So Ahab went home as any you know, good ruler, powerful ruler would do. And he got on his bed and he cried. <laughs> he lay down and he starts crying because he couldn't get, ah, I want that vineyard, right? Jezebel comes in and he's like, what are you crying about? Naboth won't sell me his vineyard. And Jezebel says, uh, have you forgotten something? You're the king. Just go take it. So he goes, oh yeah, I'm the king. So he goes out and he kills Naboth and he takes his vineyard. Oppression. Injustice. It's everywhere. Corruption. Chapter 5, verse 8. If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. For one official watches over another official and their higher officials over them. After all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. Actually, in New American Standard, that's not a very good translation of verse 9. Better translation is this. The produce of the land is seized by all of them. Even the king is served by the fields. You see what they're saying? There's, there's one official and then there's another official and another official and another official. And what they do is they watch one another's back. So they can all take from the people. All the way up to... The king himself. Corruption everywhere. In every government. In fact, I think it should be required in every presidential library that there's a scandal wing. Right? Okay, here's foreign policy, here's domestic policy, and here's the scandals. Right? It may not be the president himself, but someone in his administration, unfailingly. Right? Unfailingly. Corruption is everywhere. In Central Asia, when I was traveling there, I learned that police officers got their jobs by bribing someone. Right? You pay a bribe so you can become a police officer. And they don't pay police officers much, so you earn a living by taking more bribes. Right? That's just, that is the, the nature of the system, and everyone knows it. That's just how it works, right? So uh, on one of my trips there, we were, uh, uh, I was teaching theology and ethics and some other topics, and uh, Blake went with me. And at the end of our trip, we had a flight that left at like 4 a.m. So we had to get up really early, 3 a.m. We're at the airport. We're absolutely exhausted. And we're sitting in this dingy waiting room, right? I mean, don't think international airport as you've ever been in before. It's just this dark, dingy, dusty room. We're sitting and we're waiting. About 30 minutes before our flight, a police officer steps into the room. And he uh, looks at me and Blake and he goes, come here, like this. And he made Blake sit outside of an office door. He brought me into the office door. And so I'm sitting there, you know, completely stark, bare room, one table between us. I'm in one chair. He's in another chair, right? And he begins asking me about my trip and what I've been doing. And I make a a few things about that that aren't really true about what I've been doing there on my trip. And, uh, you know, teaching ethics and so forth, which is so ironic, given where this conversation is going, right? Teaching ethics. And... um, and then he asked me about, he says, well, do you have any currency, tenge, or you ta- you know, any tenge left that you are taking out with you? And I said, yes, I do. He said, let me sit, put it on the table. 
So I reached into my pocket and I pulled out my tenge and I put it on the table and he looked at me and he went, and I said, and he went and took my money and put it in his pocket and he said, you may leave. Unfortunately, I didn't have time to tell Blake what had transpired, right? Blake had to go right in. And fortunately for me, I had my tenge in one pocket and my U.S. dollars in the other pocket. So I just reached into one pocket, right? Pull it out. Well, Blake comes out and he had all of his money in one pocket. And so he had no money. So I paid for the rest of the trip going home because all of his dollars were gone, right? Corruption, okay? It's everywhere. At one level or another. At one level or another. I actually had that, that same experience uh, another time coming out through Moscow. And uh, I was late and trying to get onto the plane. We couldn't get through uh, past security. So they made us just sit. They said there was some uh, irregularity in a visa. So I was just sitting, sitting, waiting. And everybody goes through. Everybody's out of security. Everybody's boarded the plane. I can see they boarded the plane. And I'm sitting. And the guy's waiting for the bribe. You know, which finally, I was just so mad about the whole thing. Finally, I paid because I was a month before getting married. So I well, I got to get out of the country, right? But that's what you see. You see it everywhere. Okay? Corruption, uh, inefficiency. Chapter 8, verse 11. It says, because the sentence against evil, an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Okay? Because government doesn't get its job done effectively and efficiently, therefore Evil tends to grow, tends to multiply. I read an amazing story uh, just two weeks ago about a man in Spain. His name is Joaquin Garcia, 69 years old. Uh, He skipped work for six years. (laughs) For six years, he didn't go to his job. He worked for the city. He managed a a building in the city. For six years, he just didn't show up. He kept getting his salary, $41,000. Five hundred dollars for six years, and it would have never been discovered except for the fact that he was about to be awarded a, a twenty-year faithful, loyal service award. Right, and so they they began to investigate this and discovered well, he hasn't actually showed up for work for six years. Now his comment was this: He said, "Well, be, basically, people were mean to me at work. They, they were bullies." Right, sixty-nine-year-old man. He said they were bullying me at work, and besides, there really wasn't much work to do. Government efficiency, right? At its best. Government efficiency. I remember uh, living in Prague. I I lived there during a period of time when the Soviet Union had just basically uh, collapsed and its authority was gone. And so the Czech Republic is coming out of communism. They're trying to reshape their economy and their government and, and everything. But there were a lot of people who still really functioned with that old mindset, and there were a lot of businesses that still were being subsidized by the government. So if you went and asked a, a govern, government official to do something that was a little bit out of the ordinary, the answer was always the same. It was this. It was impossible. Right? I think that they were trained that if someone asks you a question in English, the answer is impossible. Right? I remember one time I went to a restaurant. It was still a subsidized restaurant. You'd get a plate of food for a dollar. And so I went in there, and I, I, the waiter asked what I wanted to drink, and I said, just a cup of water. And he said, impossible. So, you know, do you want beer or do you want uh, Coke? I said, I don't want beer or Coke. I just want a cup of water. And he said, impossible. And, you know, normally I just kind of roll with stuff like that. But that particular day, I don't know, maybe I'd, I'd just been at a, a government office or something. I'm so frustrated. I said, I said, no, it's not impossible. That's not what that word means in English. It's not impossible. I said, you're just unwilling 
to give me the cup of water. Because it's not impossible. You could go in and you could just turn on the faucet and put the cup underneath it and bring me a cup of water. It's not impossible. It's not impossible. So will you get me a cup of water? And his answer was impossible, right? Impossible. It's not impossible. It's not. It can be done. Unless you're the government. All right. Fallen government is limited, which is good and bad, right? They can't get all the evil done they want to get done, but they also can't get all the good done that they want to get done, right? The government cannot solve our deepest problems. They cannot eliminate all crime. They cannot eliminate all sickness and hatred and injustice. They cannot, and they cannot bring in all prosperity. And ultimately, Solomon says, they cannot deal with our deepest problem, which is death, They can't stop it. Look at chapter 8, verse 7. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind or authority over the day of death. There are limitations. Fallen government. It's sinful, satanic, unjust, corrupt, inefficient, and limited. Nevertheless, it's not all bad. Right? It's actually not all bad. There are good people, godly people who serve in government, who have good and pure motives, who, who want to do good things. But we are foolish if we think that government can solve all problems and can somehow bring in some form of utopia for us. It simply cannot happen. What we, in fact, are longing for is the government of God on earth. It's deeply seated in us, eternity in our hearts, as we long for the rule of God. Perfect government will look like this. Isaiah chapter 9. Child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. It will be a benevolent dictatorship, right? All wise, all knowing, all good ruler, Jesus Christ, who rules and reigns through us and brings in the kingdom of God. And I would argue that our frustrations with human government are actually deeply within us this embedded longing for Jesus to return. But he's not here yet. So in the meantime, how should we behave? What does it mean to be a godly citizen in a fallen world? You remember one time uh, Jesus was asked this uh, type of question. He was asked, should we pay the poll tax? Should we pay it? Is it legitimate? Are we under this authority or not? And Jesus said, well, bring me the coin. Remember the story? He says, bring me the coin. He says, whose likeness is on that? Whose image? Whose inscription? They say, well, it's Caesar's. He said, well, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, that's a profound statement, but one of the significance of of that statement is this. We actually live in two spheres of authority. We are citizens of heaven and we are citizens of earth. We have dueling obligations. We are dual citizens in that respect. But our citizenship in heaven far transcends our citizenship on earth. Our obligations, in other words, are not equivalent. Our obligation to God is far higher than our obligation to any state. And Christians, we have to keep that firmly in mind. You will notice there is not an American flag on this stage. And that's not because we can't find it. And it's stuck in a closet. We've lost it. It's intentional. There's not an American flag on this stage. Because as worshipers of Jesus Christ, we are the church. We're the body of Christ. 
We are a manifestation of the kingdom of God on earth. And the kingdom of God on earth is far greater than any nation. This is not an American church. It's the church. And to put any single flag on the stage would be to diminish the greatness and the beauty and the grandeur of who we are, which is the body of Christ, right? We're the body of Christ, which transcends all nations. Body of Christ includes people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, men and women, Kingdoms rise and fall. Kingdoms rise and fall. But the kingdom of God stands forever. Okay? There is nothing greater, and will never be anything greater, than the kingdom of God. And that is, ultimately, our highest allegiance above all. Russell Moore is the president of the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. A couple weeks ago, I bought a book Uh, by him, excellent. I highly recommend reading it. It's called Onward, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel. He said this, there will come a day when old glory, and if you're not an American uh, and you're you're worshiping with us this morning, old glory is a, a nickname for the U.S. flag, okay? So there will come a day when old glory yields to an older glory, when the new republic succumbs to a new creation, We must not shirk our callings as citizens, but we also must not see our citizenship of the moment as the final word. We're Americans best when we are not Americans first. Oh man, that's good. Hey, we are Americans best when we are not Americans first, when we keep our obligations in the proper priority. And this applies to you. I see people from other nations always, every Sunday, worshiping here with us. So this is true of you if you are Kenyan or Guatemalan or Chinese. You are the best Kenyan. If you're not a Kenyan first, but you're a Christian first. Or whether you're Guatemalan, you're a Christian first and then a Guatemalan. Or Chinese, you're Christian first and then Chinese. Or Russian, you're Christian first and then Russian. Let's keep these priorities in order. God's kingdom first. Dr. Moore goes on. He says, beside us there may be flags and we'll pledge allegiance where we ought and where we can. But always over us there's a cross. Man, that's good. Always over us there's a cross. So, what does it mean to be citizens of heaven who live as citizens on earth? How do we do that well? A couple ideas for you. First, honor. Read with me chapter 8 of Ecclesiastes and verse 1. We honor the governing authorities over us. Who is like the wise man and who knows the interpretation of a matter? A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. I say this, keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not join in the evil matter for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, what are you doing? He who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble for a wise heart knows the proper time and the proper procedure. Now notice this phrase in particular, chapter eight, verse two. He says, keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. Well, what's the oath? It could be the oath that men and women take to the the king to pledge their allegiance, right? To honor the king and his rule. Or it could be, in this context in particular, the oath that God gives to the king. That I've established you, right? And I have placed you. What Solomon's saying is very simply, honor the authority that God has placed in your life. Turn with me to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. 
For there's no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. For if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Honor the authorities that God has placed in your life. Now, this is not a statement, though, that is telling you that you must universally obey government. In fact, there are times throughout the Bible when people who follow God are called upon to resist the governing authorities, right? Daniel said no. Daniel said no. He said no to the governing authorities. He said, no, you don't have the right to tell me not to pray. You have transgressed the the, the boundaries of your, your limited authority delegated from God. I will pray, and you do whatever you want to do, but I will pray. Daniel said no. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said no. They said no. We won't bow down and worship before this statue of Nebuchadnezzar. No, we won't. Because we answer to a higher authority and you have transgressed the boundaries, the limitations of your authority. They said no. Peter and John said no. Peter and John said no. So no, you can't tell us not to preach. Because we answer to a higher authority and our authority is God. And God said preach the gospel of Jesus Christ so we will preach. So honor and respect your authority and understand where the boundary is. And men and women, you may have to say no at some point in time. I'm certain all of you have have heard the story about the the baker who was told to bake the cake for a gay wedding. And Christians debate back and forth. Should that baker just go ahead and bake it and, and and demonstrate love? Should the baker say, no, I won't bake that cake because I'm affirming then something that I think is unbiblical and I draw, you know, you can debate and go back and forth. But the point is this, in our culture and the way our culture is going, you're going to, you're going to find more and more and more times when it will seem that the government may be stepping over the boundaries of its authority. That's the direction our culture is moving right now. So we honor and we respect and we learn where do we need to, in our conscience, draw a boundary? Okay? It's both. Influence. Influence the governing authorities. There are characters throughout the Bible who spoke truth to the leaders in their nations. And you have an opportunity to speak truth to the leaders in your nation by voting. Right? Don't miss that opportunity. You know, many, many, many Christians stay home and do not vote. You need to vote. So this morning, I'm going to tell you how to vote. (laughs) Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 13. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 13. A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. I'm not going to tell you who's the poor, wise lad or who's the old, foolish king in our current elections. The point is this. It kind of shocked the original readers because you would think, well, wisdom comes with age. He goes, no, actually, it's the younger one who has wisdom. Well, wisdom comes with wealth. Those things usually come together. Well, actually, it's the poor 
young boy who's the wise one. He may even be in prison. I'm free, but he's wise. When you vote, look for wisdom. What are the things that really matter to God? Justice, righteousness, truth, protection of freedom so the gospel can go out. Life, guard life. Vote well, vote wisely. And think seriously about it. And don't miss the opportunity. Look at chapter 10, verse 16. Woe to you, O land, whose king is a lad and whose princes feast in the morning. He flips the analogy here. Now it's the young who are foolish. He says, Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility and whose princes eat at the appropriate time for strength and not for drunkenness. They're good. They're wise. They listen. They learn. They're not just talking all the time without listening to others and gaining and growing in wisdom. Pay attention. I know it gets tiresome listening to debate after debate or reading a position paper, but you need to know where these people stand so you can vote in a manner that is good and it is godly and it is wise. There are some who would be better than others as rulers in our nation. So I encourage you, influence your government. Vote. Or maybe be the government. Serve. God may be calling you to be a Nehemiah, right? Or to be a Daniel or to be a Joseph. If so, pray that God would protect you from satanic attack. Pray that you would stay straight and govern righteously and true. But God may call some of you to step into that arena, to be citizens first of heaven, but also those who are helping govern citizens on earth. So influence the government around you. Fourth, pray. Take you back to 1 Timothy 2 again. First of all then, again, priority. Paul says, let me put things in priority. First of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, especially these though, kings and all who are in authority. Why? So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Pray. Pray. Daniel was praying and his prayers influenced the spiritual forces that were influencing nations. And when this is how God has chosen to engage us in the process. We get to vote, yes, we might get to serve, and we get to pray. Let's not be negligent in prayer. We're getting worried and fretful, but we're often not praying. Okay, pray. Pray for these outcomes and what may take place. I love this verse in Jeremiah chapter 29. It says this, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. Isn't that beautiful? Remember, these are people who've been exiled. They're away from their homes. They're not where they want to be. They're like us, right? They're they're exiles. They're longing for their home. They're like us. We're longing for our home. But he says, well, while you're there, don't get angry and disgruntled and frustrated and try to undermine everything that's going on. Do good for the place where you are and pray for it. And that might mean voting. It might mean praying. It might mean serving. But do good for this citizenship where you are right now. Then fifth, relax. (laughs) Relax. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 14. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There's nothing to add to it. There's nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. Men and women, God is still on his throne. God is still on his throne. Let me share with you one of about 30 different psalms that I pulled up this week. Chapter 29, verse 10, it says this. The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. 
Uh, Think about that. The Lord sat as king at the flood. Before the flood, what was happening? Society was decaying. Probably worse than our society today. And it's possible that Noah and his wife were sitting around going, oh no, oh no, oh no. But God was still on his throne. And when the right time for judgment came, God judged. Because God has that authority and we don't. So I would say this to you. God's still on his throne, so it's okay. God hasn't left his throne, so it's okay. And maybe you need to just write it on a card and put it on the dashboard of your car or on the mirror in your bathroom. It just says, God is on his throne. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, maybe we should just say that together this morning. Ready? Okay, God is on his throne. It's okay. Okay, that's true. That's true. If your person gets elected, it's good and godly, then pray for that person to stay good and godly. And if somebody who's not good and godly gets elected, pray that they become good and godly. But remember this, either way, God is on his throne, and it's okay. okay? Somebody uh, posted on Facebook, saw this uh, last week. A guy was pushing for his particular candidate, and he said, uh, this candidate will bring God back to America. <laughs> I was like, well, I didn't know he left. And I don't know if any person would have the authority to bring him back if he had. I think he'd just stay if he chose to go. He's, that's it, right? My candidates are going to bring God back to America. It's problems of government, right? No, God is on his throne. God is on his throne. He's never left his throne. He'll always be on his throne so we can relax and we can hope. Okay. Our hope is in heaven. I memorized these verses a few years ago. I would encourage you strongly to do the same. Philippians chapter three says this for our citizenship is in heaven. That's our priority citizenship. We got citizenship on earth, but our ultimate citizenship is not here, it's in heaven. From which we also eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. It's one of Paul's just run-on sentences. He said, I just got to show you, Jesus has power. He's got all power and he's going to return and he's going to transform you. And that's where your citizenship lies. So what is your priority right now? Your priority right now is to populate the kingdom of God with more citizens. Okay, that's your priority. I'm not saying it's unimportant which candidate wins office right now. But I'm saying it's not the highest priority. And so You might get really excited about a particular candidate and you might want to campaign for that candidate. You might want to give your money for that candidate. I'm not saying that's bad. That can be a really good thing if it's a a good and godly person. I'm just saying it's not the most important thing. So if you find yourself getting more excited about this candidate than you are about Jesus Christ, something's wrong in your life, right? You should get way more excited about Jesus than a particular candidate because there's so much more hope in, the, in Jesus than there is in any person. Men and women will fail us as leaders. But Jesus will never fail us. So what is our highest priority? Work to see the kingdom of heaven populated with citizens. So, what is that message that gets them into the kingdom? Well, I've decided this week I'm going to write a new tract. A new gospel tract, Right? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's already been written. So my new tract is this. God loves you no matter how you vote. <laughs> okay, that's, that's law one. God loves you no matter how you vote. If you vote well and wisely, okay. If you vote poorly, okay. If you don't vote at all, God loves you. Why does he love you? Because he made you. He made you. 
And you're broken and you're sinful, but Jesus died for that brokenness and died for that sinfulness. And he's taken away that debt of sin sin because he paid for it on the cross and then God raised him from the dead so that you can have life forever and you can be a citizen of heaven. A citizen of heaven and know that you will live forever in the presence of God under perfect government. And all that you have to do is say, God, thank you. I believe. I believe Jesus died for my sins. Men and women, that is our priority as Christians. That is our message. I'm not saying these other things are unimportant. They're just not nearly as important as the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I want to leave you with a quote. This is from Erwin Lutzer. He's the pastor of Moody Church in Chicago. He said this. We have to be clear about what government can and cannot do. Of course we should work toward good government, good laws, and good judges. But we cannot be naive in thinking that government can rescue us from the abyss of moral and spiritual failure. When will we learn that the best news this nation needs will not come from Washington, but from the lips and the lives of followers of Jesus Christ? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would be wise. I pray that we would live for the things that are most important, not ignoring the the other things in life that we must attend to, but we would be good citizens of earth, but we would be great citizens of heaven. Father, we pray for this election coming up, that you would give us a good and godly, wise leader. Father, even if you don't, we know that you remain on your throne. And you can work your purposes in every situation and in every circumstances. So we pray most of all that your will would be done. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Vote well. See you next week.